thus far they've said it's going to be compatible with uh, 5e and you know people are saying maybe 5.5 maybe not even that we don't know um I, I, I think fundamentally we don't know. Uh, there's certainly been conversation about is the OGL going to go away, um, which would make it so that third-party publishers could no longer put out uh, compatible products for the newest version, uh, maybe, because uh, they could probably backfill it as we have for so many retro clones. We don't know. It's speculation, it's rumors, it's guesses. Welcome to the Daiku Podcast Year in Review. And as last year, we were joined by Shannon Applecline, who is the amazing writer of Designers and Dragons, four-volume set that goes from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the knots. And we'll talk more about Shannon's contribution to the history of game design. But uh, first of all, Shannon, welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. It's been great doing these year-end talks. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed our last year's talk and I, I reflected upon our uh, discussion and talking about predictions and what had happened last year and it's been an exciting year. So why don't we just dive right into it? Overall, how do you think the industry has been faring, especially coming out of the pandemic? Uh, I've been really thrilled to see some good attention for the industry, some excitement. I've been thrilled to see the cons coming back and fairly full farms, so there's some concern there. Looks like it's been good for me. I'm fairly astounded that the industry did not take any uh, particularly hard hits from the pandemic. No major publishers went out of business, uh, and it was really trying times for publishers, especially with the problems with uh, shipping and, and the cost of shipping. Have you seen those uh, difficulties with logistics and the shipping and the printing costs and paper shortage? Have you seen all those kind of come to an end now? The shipping costs have dropped from what I've seen. Um, they seem to be back around where they were. Paper costs, I hear, are still very problematic. And I've even heard even finding paper is actually the, the bigger issue even, and that obviously goes into the costs. Um, do you see a difference between North America and Europe in that? Haven't really uh, seen what the difference might be there. I mean, we're doing most of our printing in China. Uh, I don't know if Europe is more likely to be doing it local or not. Okay. And then uh, I'm a Canadian. And as we actually always like to say about America is uh, when you sleep with an elephant, when they roll over in bed, you notice and that you know everybody kind of loves Canada and USA into the same world but we often know like if there's decisions made on in the US world we feel it and uh, with almost everybody in this game world wizards of the coast when they do anything it, it reverberates across the whole industry and so they announced the 1D&D &D, uh um i guess change or like growth and uh, just maybe lead us through that i mean obviously they didn't call it 6c for a reason but maybe you can talk to us about that yeah i mean i, I suspect it's going to take wizards coast quite a while to get over 4e um great game i love the designers used to work with one of them but it was not widely accepted uh rob who who was the lead of it uh, later said that he thought the big problem was um, trying to dramatically revamp the game system and the setting for Gone Realms in particular, but the whole points of lights idea at the same time. So I think Wizards of the Coast is probably very adverse to using the phrase new edition following 4E. Um, 
One D and D thus far, they've said it's going to be compatible with five uh, E, and you know, people are saying maybe five five, maybe not even that. We don't know. Um, I, I, I think fundamentally, we don't know. Uh, there's certainly been conversation about is the OGL going to go away, um, which would make it so that third-party publishers could no longer put out uh, compatible products for the newest version, uh, maybe, because uh, they could probably backfill it as we have for so many retro clones. We don't know. It's speculation, it's rumors, it's guesses. Do you think it would be uh, smart of uh, Wizards of the Coast to actually be a little bit more clear on their direction? Because I, you see a lot of influencers. I saw Professor uh, Dungeon Master, Questing Beast, uh, Dungeon Masterpiece, uh, and Nerd Immersion all kind of come out recently. And there, there seems to be a lot of anxiety about what this might mean for the future of people that uh, work within the industry, whether it's an OSR or actually support 5e. It's a good question. I mean, the old um, saying says any publicity is good publicity. And so it might be that they're just like, wow, everyone's speculating about the game. That's great. Uh, I, I probably don't really think it's that cunning. Um, I think the biggest issue with not being clear is it's showing a real disregard for any third party publishers who are, you know, using the OGL, which you know, Wizards of the Coast has offered to let other people publish their games. And that is not a good look, but it's kind of what Wizards of the Coast has done with their third party uh, publishing programs ever since they opened up the OGL in 2000. And I think probably also adding to that is the fact that there's like this kind of push towards like a digital walled garden or theoretically of the unity game engine and having more online play as well as just the fact that um when they aren't being clear it opens up so much conjecture as far as like people build companies to support this and if they cannot rely upon that as a steady stream of income they get worried um well, it if they can't rely upon that as a steady stream of income, then they use the OGL, go off, make their own game, and it becomes a huge competitor uh, in its own regard for D&D. And so that's the type of danger they're creating. And you've obviously been a part of this industry for like quite a while. And when you hear, um, I know the CEO mentioned about D&D uh, being under monetized and d d is a little bit of a different brand than I would say other brands as far as like, I know they like to portray it as a lifestyle brand, but it's a little bit different because like, I, th I think it needs more nurturing. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of uh, a th thought about the brand, probably more than almost any other brand. Um, would you say those are kind of wise words from a CEO to kind of in, in the brand of d d to state? Uh I think it's whatever the opposite of wise words are. It is, uh, I think, possibly the worst thing I've ever heard come out of the mouth of anyone associated with Wizards of the Coast. It, I, I was on the internet in the 90s when TSR was still around. And everyone, when they talked about TSR online, they'd write T dollar sign R. Um, and they would talk about uh, TSR's trademarking of the word Nazi, which isn't exactly how it occurred, but we won't get into that. Um, TSR was not well loved by the uh, internet fandom, which is kind of the loud community fandom in the 90s. And it was because 
at least at the higher up in, in management, very much not the designers, but the higher ups in management, they didn't really care about the players. They cared about profits. And, you know, that goes back to Lorraine Williams, who really didn't understand D&D. And she totally saved the company in the 80s. But, you know, that doesn't mean that she was kind of the best bridge to, to playing and her decisions affected the whole company. And I am concerned we're seeing the same thing here that Wizards of the Coast has gone very corporate. The other things that really struck me in the statement is they talked about under monetization, uh, and this was all at an investors meeting. Um, they talked about under monetization. They talked about uh, players not being the ones that aren't monetized. Uh, I kind of put is not paying their fair share that, oh, that's not quite what they said. And they also said, well, we have a solution to this, which is D&D Beyond, which they purchased uh, in February of March in this year. And so you put that all together and there's just so many red flags there. You know, the fact that I would think almost any player would be offended and maybe a little concerned being told, hey, you're going to have to start paying too. You know, the dungeon master's paying isn't enough. And I think any player of the tabletop game has to be concerned that they are looking to a virtual tabletop is, you know, their solution to these problems. And it, it could be innocuous. It could just be, we're not going to mess with the tabletop, but as we uh, advance into virtual tabletops, we want to get everyone to pay, which again, still wouldn't thrill me as a player. Uh, it would make me less likely to use the virtual tabletop technology. But it could also be bigger if they're saying, hey, we're going to push 1D&D on the virtual tabletop, and it's not necessarily going to be a tabletop game. Again, you know, we don't know what they're saying. All we know are those three things that they said, under-monetized players not playing D&D Beyond is the answer. And I find those three things alone concerning. And then not to heap on the Wizards of the Coast, I'm not trying to do that, but uh, just talking about, obviously they had a huge jump during the pandemic as far as like all of a sudden people were looking for things to do, Stranger Things and the halo effect of that. Um, so with, with all that said, like there's tons of new players coming in and, you know, typically what I have seen in the past, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, players, when they have a lot of free time, when they're younger, they play and then they start to age out a little bit when they start to get, you know, more responsibilities as adults and that kind of thing. And then you see stories like uh, the magic, uh, the magic, the gathering oversupply and, you know, the missteps in Spelljammer. Do you see like there being a bit of a bubble deflating similar to the D20 era. And I'm, I'm trying to maybe connect things a little bit too strongly, but do you see the, the growth of D&D kind of hitting a plateau and it deflating a little bit? I'm not sure I've seen that yet. Um, the DN, the Magic the Gathering cards being overprinted, uh, at least Wizards' response to that, and obviously this is a biased source, they said, oh, the bank who, who made that statement, they just misunderstood the fact that it was the supply chain problems caused by the pandemic that made us put out two packs, you know, one on top of the other. We've stayed with our, I think it's quarterly uh, production, and it just so happened that we got unlucky there. So uh, it, it's hard to say anything there. Uh, the inclusion of the hazardy and the spell jammer was unfortunate, but certainly just seemed to be like the type of thing Wizards of the Coast has been wrangling with Ann Pezo and, and other people figuring out how things that um, might have slid by fine in the past aren't actually acceptable when you look at them too deeply. Um, 
so I've thus far seen a lot of small things that each seem to have their own explanation. Uh, if I were to say one concern about is it going to plateau, it would simply be on the question of, you know, what's the next critical role? What's the next Stranger Things? Stranger Things has one season left. It's on such a slow schedule nowadays that I can't believe it's making a huge impact like it did originally. Critical roles still doing great. The people involved with it are big movers in the industry now, but I haven't seen the next one coming up. And I think it could plateau if some of the things that kind of led the way to success aren't, um, if we don't see new instances coming out. And that would be my biggest concern. But it could also be that these little things are leading to a bigger problem. Uh, one that you didn't mention is that Ray Winninger, uh, who's been the product lead of D&D for the last several years, left. You know, no explanation of why. It's hard for me at least not to in some way correlate with the other things coming out of Wizards about how they're wanting to move the brand. We don't know that. Um, rumors and speculation, like I said. But it certainly looked to me like that might be more important than any of the other things. And then uh, as Wizards of the Coast is the elephant in the bed, let's drop it way down to the indie scene. How, how is the health of the indie scene? The indie scene seems to have still been doing well. Uh, itch was a you know huge new way for people to get games and produce games in fairly small quantity that was better than anything they had in the odd odds when they were trying to figure out you know how do we get them out through you know nascent uh, PDF publishers and you know in print at Gen Con. Uh, I also feel like it's caused a little bit of separation. I don't see as much of it anymore unless I go over there. Um, there certainly continue to be influences on the mainstream. There continue to be the companies like Evil Hat, who, you know, did well enough that they're publishing fairly mainstream now. I'm not sure I've seen the big new ones come up, um, but I'm still working on Designers and Dragons, the the tens, the sequel to the four books that you mentioned. And so I'm finding more and more there. So we'll see what some of the trends are. And we discussed prior to the start of the show, like a, basically a third generation of OSR coming into play now. And it's kind of funny the way to think of that because OSR <laughs> just being what it is, like it's taken on, I guess, a life of its own. Yeah, it's been pretty exciting to see. And I'm, I think different people have different definitions on what the generations are. But but the one we were talking about was that kind of two of the the leaders of the field have come back. Uh, Matt Finch and Daniel Proctor, between the two of them, were the primary forces for the three original retro clones that came out, uh, Osric, uh, Labyrinth Lard, and Swords and Wizardry. And uh, Matt Finch spent about a decade at uh, uh, Frog God Games and just this year decided to uh, reinstate his old uh, Mythmere Games brand. Uh, and he did a uh, Tome of Adventure Design Kickstarter, which was quite successful. Um, I haven't really seen what the next step is, but him being out at his own company again is great. Uh, Daniel Proctor, who did Labyrinth Lard with his own Goblinoid games, had kind of faded away for four or five years. He'd kind of uh, stepped back, uh, old school essentials, stepped up and became a uh, really important retro clone also for basic D&D. Uh, but this year, uh, Dan apparently set a kind of self-imposed goal that said, 
that he was going to shut down Goblinoid Games if by the end of the year he uh, didn't have much of a new product and much of a new edition of Labyrinth Lord done. And all he told people was, hey, you know, closing down Facebook group forums. I don't remember what it was exactly. And everyone took it as, hey, Goblinoid Games is closing down. And then this month, last month, very recently, he said, hey, here's the new cover for a second edition. And here's some of the uh, new uh, content inside. So apparently when when he took that goal, he really took it to heart and he seems to be coming back and uh, revitalized and people are very excited about it. So it's very exciting to see these people who were, you know, the foundational uh, people doing uh, mass market products uh, eventually for the uh, uh, OSR coming back to do a new generation of material. And uh, Rollmaster Unified has come out recently, which is Iron Crown Enterprises um, Reborn. Um, and uh, I guess one of the things that I noted was that they chose not to do a Kickstarter. Um, and I I don't know if it's taken off like th th I think they had hoped. Yeah, Iron Crown has a very complex uh, history. I believe this is the third incarnation of it. Maybe the fourth? Uh, somewhere around there. They've had a long-term problem uh, dating back to the 80s and the 90s where they had uh, their original, what's now called Rollmaster Classic. And then when they came out with their third edition, uh, Rollmaster Standard System, it was a very different system. And so you either have people like me who kind of enjoyed the original despite its complexity, but just found the uh, standard system jaw-droppingly ununderstandable. And you have people who conversely love the Rollmaster standard system and think the classic is too simplistic. I don't know. I'm not sure I could ever call Rollmaster simplistic. So the problem is that some of the recent incarnations of uh, uh, ICE, after years of trying to support uh, RMSS, said, hey, what if we came out with some Rollmaster classic material? And they've had great success. And so for a decade or so, ICE has been supporting two different systems with a fractured fan base, which probably wasn't really in anyone's best interest. And so it, almost 10 years ago, they said, hey, we're going to come out with a Rollmaster Unified. Um, and 10 years later, longer than the lifespan of TND3 or 4 it, it's finally out. I suspect you're right, and it hasn't had a huge impact. And I suspect a Kickstarter might have helped because Kickstarters aren't just about raising money. They are about raising interest and uh, raising publicity, too. And, you know, if you're a company that needs all of them, that's great. But even if you have the funding, the marketing can really help. Um, and then yeah. I think uh, Darkmaster, uh, like, is a retro clone of Rollmaster. <laughs> <laughs> ironically is probably having a lot of success or in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. There is a retro clone of Rollmaster too, and it seems to have done uh, pretty well. I don't think it's dark master, but I don't have the uh, name quite on yeah, the, sorry. I thought I got that wrong. My tongue. Um, but yeah, it, it feels to me like um, ice is kind of off in its own community and it's probably slowly over been time been shrinking. I like see their, email newsletters. Uh, but unlike some of the other classic companies like Chaosium, who made a real big comeback when they changed hands, uh, probably oh, close to a decade ago now, not quite. Um, 
it doesn't feel like ICE has ever seen that big resurgence. And Rollmaster Unified definitely could be that, but they need to get the word out. I think there's a valid question of if anyone in the modern field is likely to be interested in a game of that complexity, because Rollmaster is a real nuts and bolts, complex system full of charts and you know various mechanics. Uh, I love it for that, but it's also not what the field is right now. So that could be one of the reasons that it hasn't seen a big explosion. But RuneQuest is kind of a nuts and bolts system too, not to the level of Rollmaster and and Chaos managed to make it cool again. And Goodman Games uh, went in on Dark Tower and Caverns of uh, Thracia. And yeah. uh, so they seem to be really just grooving along to, they have a big fan base. Yeah, Goodman Games has really been a pleasant surprise kind of for the last 10 or, or 12 years. You know, they were a strong, good, interesting uh, three publisher during that era. And then as everyone, they had problems with, with 4E, they really tried hard to support it. Um, but then after that, when that didn't work out, they just kind of really exploded into all of this great uh, nostalgic old school, you know, material. Um, they've done Lankmar, they've done The Dying Earth, they've done all kinds of great uh, Appendix N material. Uh, you know, referring to the original Dungeon Master's Guide list of inspirational material. Uh, and they've also done the uh, great, um, what are they called, Old School Rebarn, uh, whatever they were that, you know, are these massive tomes that are reprinting the uh, uh, old material from uh, TSR mostly, but they've moved over to Judges Guild. And so Dark Tower is supposed to be their uh, seventh, eighth in that series. And I assume Cavern of Thracia is to follow. And one of the really great things about that is it uh, reclaimed that material from Judges Guild, who unfortunately in its uh, current incarnation were its owned and run by the uh, son and grandson of uh, uh, the original founder of the company. Um, they've turned out to be kind of racist. And so increasingly people have not wanted to work with them or with the material they hold. So having Goodman Games buy that, it feels like it was saved. And who do you have with you today? This is Lucy here. Say hello to the internet world. <laughs> I'll see if uh, my cat Pickles makes uh, her way up at any time. Yeah. She, they I always have to, to decide if to, to lock them out or not. And if I lock them out, then I hear yowling at the door for the entire <laughs> span of the podcast. And just closing off kind of the health of the indie scene, uh, any winners, which typically any's seem to go to more of the indie type of games uh, you know cutting edge of mechanics and concepts and that kind of thing were there any kind of standouts or surprises to you um with some of the winners i don't think so i need to look over the list again to remember who it was this year to be honest well i, I know that there's uh one of the areas that struck me was free league uh, not only were they awarded a lot of uh any's for primarily other production values which are obviously amazing but uh with free league they've also done a ton of licensing with alien uh one ring blade runner now recently announced walking dead 
Um, what's your kind of thoughts on where they're heading? And they also had uh, Jakar Ok Demoner, which is Dragons and Demons, um, which was a Swedish game from a long time ago that they <laughs> dusted off. What's your thoughts on where are they heading? Well, Free League seems to be heading into more success from what I can see. Uh, they started off very small and they have clearly become one of the major movers in the industry. Um, their Blade Runner Kickstarter, which was uh, just ran this year, is one of just seven role-playing centric uh, Kickstars that surpassed a million dollars and one of only three that were not D&D 5e related. So I think that alone speaks to the level of success they're seeing. Uh, they have certainly decided to do a, a model of shadow, shallow product lines. You know, they put out a book and they put out a little bit of support for it. Uh, and I think that's what's allowed them to have so many different licenses and products. Uh, presumably the one ring, they're going to go a little deeper than that, uh, following in the tradition of where the line has gone in previous publishers. But they seem to be doing great. Uh, I love the fact that we are in a world now where a Swedish company can have you know, worldwide role-playing impact that was not the case 20 or 30 years ago. And with Kickstarter and the internet, primarily, it's very possible now. So it's been great to see. They're a very successful company. If I was uh, told you need to, you know, pull out two or three big successes of the tens, they'd be one of them. Do you think uh, there's ever a saturation point with too many licenses and not enough original content? I don't think so in that regard. Um, licensing has really taken over a lot of companies. Modifius, who's another one of the companies who I think is one of the big successes of the tens, they're very heavy on licensing too. Um, we've seen in the odd odds and tens any number of companies that you know build their publications entirely are almost entirely on licensing and they've done very well. The question, well, the two questions I would ask are, A, are they ready for the dangers of licensing? Um, the biggest problem of licensing is that you are beholden to the uh, licensor and you can have a product line that you have slaved over and that you've built your reputation on pulled out from under you at any point. Um, and so you can go all the way back to the origins of the industry and you can say, hey, there are companies like FASA, who's best known for Battletech, uh, who actually got their start as a licensee. They started publishing on Traveler and uh, eventually decided, hey, we don't want to be publishing a game system we don't own. Uh, and then they found success on that on their own with the Star Trek license. And then they said, hey, we don't want to be supporting a game uh, universe we don't own. And then they came out with Battletech and you know they became one of the most successful companies in the industry based on that. Um, just this year or just this month, uh, Modifius lost their Conan license. You know, they put out much of their original vision, but they still had books in the pipeline. They had a book on the picks that was uh, talked about in the previous release that will never come out now. Uh, they only have till next June, July or something to sell their products and they're not publishing anything new. So, you know, that sucks. And it sucks for us as consumers too, because there was this great well-received Conan line that's not going to be available again after mid next year. So that's the first thing I'd say, you know, is Free League ready for what happens when some of those licenses start going away? Because 
some of those licenses, like the Alien license, that was, you know, a pretty high flying license for them that, uh, from what I remember of interviews, they didn't necessarily think they had a chance for, and they were really thrilled when they got it. Uh, the other question is, are they pulling the old TSR move of just uh, splitting up their audience between too many uh, settings? That was one of the frequent reasons given for TSR's problems. And there were a lot of reasons for its problems, but that was one of them. And is Free League doing that? And it could be that since they're not publishing wide product lines, it's not as big of a problem because TSR was still, you know, they'd come out with a new world and then they'd have six to 12 products out a year for that. And then a new world and six to 12 for that where Free League, it could be just, hey, you pick up the new game, you pick up the supplements for it, and then you move on to the next one. I think one of the questions is always, are you selling to collectors or players? And I think maybe players don't necessarily work as well if you're trying to jump them from system to system, but collectors might. With licenses, and I see I'm not in the business enough to know, there's a certain, I believe there's a certain requirement of like, it's not just, you can't just put out one game. They want you to support the line. Is that not right? And like build it out over a number of years or, or is it up to the, publisher to go, we want to maximize our license and put out more stuff. Uh, it, it's wholly dependent upon the terms of your license. You certainly could have licenses just for a limited number of books. I know when Green Ronin put out their uh, DC books, uh, probably several years ago now, uh, that it, they were set as three books, I think. And that was it, you know, start, middle, end. And there's many others that allow for uh, uh, long-term there may be minimum sales requirements, which might have to do with the whole line. It depends upon the terms of the licenses. Um, there's certainly products that have just put out one book. Uh, Riverhorse did a Labyrinth role-playing game uh, the other year that was just the, the one standalone book. Um, on the other hand, they've also done their... Um, uh, My Little Pony related stuff that has been wildly successful and they support year after year with just a couple of products a year, but still, so all depends on the terms. And do you, closing out freely, do you think they could eventually knock off a Wizards of the Coast? Is that conceivable that like they might become that big? No, there there is no one conceivable in the industry who could uh, knock off Wizards of the Coast. You know, earlier I alluded to, hey, you know, Wizards created a competitor when they, you know, moved to D&D 4E and forced Pezo to move to Pathfinder. Yes, but, you know, Pathfinder, you know, might at its best have 10, 20, 25% of the sales of D&D, if that, somewhere in that range, probably. It's, there's no real competitor. There was never really a competitor for TSR and there's, never really been a competitor for Wizards. And then part of the success of Free League has been Kickstarter. And uh, early on in the year, they uh, announced uh, like what I would probably refer to as an ominous uh, NFT announcement. And there was a certain amount of backlash towards that. And then uh, in ZineQuest, they changed it from uh, February, which it had traditionally been run to August to line up with Gen Con. And uh, a lot of people, uh, also, once again, kind of gave a bit of backlash against that. Where do you see uh, Kickstarter fitting into the ecosystem, despite these kind of missteps, or at least presumed missteps? Yeah, Kickstarter's decision, Kickstarter's announcement that they were going to uh, move over to an open source blockchain-based uh, uh, technology is probably one of the worst shootings in the foot that I've ever seen. It was just 
stupid. And the reason it was stupid is because it was pure fantasy. You know, what, what they were talking about was probably never going to happen. Uh, what they were talking about, I, I actually work in the blockchain industry and uh, I do technical writing in the blockchain industry. And we talk about it sometimes as the pixie dust effect where someone thinks, hey, if I uh, apply apply blockchain to, to my uh, business, it's all going to be great and it'll make everything better. And that's not the case at all. Uh, blockchain has some very high costs and it has some very real benefits, but you have to be able to use the benefits for the cost to be worthwhile. And last year, blockchain was receiving a very high level of um, uh, international probably disdain from people who were upset over the high technology, the high energy costs, which is only true for some blockchains, which do some things. Uh, and they were upset over NFTs. And so Kickstarter walked into all of that. They never said why they would use blockchain. They never said how. They just said, we're going to do this. And you know, the inevitable thing happened. And what I think sad is that some publishers have moved away from using Kickstarter and are now running on less successful platforms where they are raising less money and thus their projects are less successful for something that was probably just a fantasy and was never going to actually impact it. You know, they did it for sound reasons that met their ethics. And so I can understand why they did it, but it was just never going to happen. And so Kickstarter just so much shot themselves in their foot. I, I know less about the the move of the zine quest and how that might have impacted people. Um, but Kickstarter has not been, um, you know, giving themselves a particularly great reputation in the board game, uh, in, in the role-playing industry, in the board game industry, in the rest of the world for the last year. And they really need to get their act together. Uh, and I do think it's great that GameFound is is doing better. Um, it seems to be a really viable uh, uh, platform for board games right now. For role-playing games, I'm not sure if it has quite the same reach, but it, it's good to see real competition, which I hadn't seen with Indiegogo. Indiegogo, just it was obviously always much less successful than Kickstarter when you saw comparable companies doing comparable uh, uh, Kickstarters on both of them. But GameFound, it could be that it will end up being as good as uh, Kickstarter for the gaming industry. And board games might already be there. I've seen some very successful board games over there already. And Mind I think you, I haven't created an account there. And that that's always the big limitation, even though there's some things I saw that I was like, I'd be interested in that. And then I saw a backer kit who had been fulfilling Kickstarters primarily has also kind of announced that they're working on uh, perhaps a Kickstarter competitor. And uh, it looks like uh, uh, Anya Combs, who was originally part of Kickstarter, has moved over there. So I see that and I think they're taking on trial or early adopters of their platform. Um, and I just, I guess that goes to speak to the fact that people aren't happy with Kickstarter and other companies are seeing an opportunity to fill that void. Yeah, I think BackerKit is another one that might have a real good chance for success. And that's because, I mean, why has Kickstarter never built this back end, you know, where you can do the fulfillment, which is what BackerKit does. That's just, you know, compliance, laziness. I don't know what it is, but, uh, 
they just opened up the opportunity for Backerkit to go there. And Backerkit now having that successful back end already might be able to build a successful front end. I don't remember from my Backerkit uh, work if you actually create an account with them. If you do create an account with them, then they've already got people into the system. But I don't know if that's actually the case. I know I get a link, I send them the information, it's saved. So maybe, and if so, that'll be a big step up for them. And then with that said, uh, going back to some of the success stories, you know, we've got uh, Free League uh, Mothership, which uh, also cracked uh, over a million um, with their successful campaign, and they, they're just close to fulfilling that. Um, how do you see indie games in particular, because I guess that's a little bit more of my lens, being able to uh, access a huge market, which we've never seen before. I was even surprised and no slight against Exalted Funeral. I couldn't believe the success of the Monty Python campaign. I was, <laughs> I actually was worried for them that it was going to fail and you hear how wrong could I have been? Yeah, I think uh, Kickstarter crowdfunding has been great for the more independent publishers. Uh, I said there were just seven people, seven publishers who uh, cracked a million dollars in 2022. And I think uh, maybe four or five of them, I would probably count independent, not free league, though you're counting free league independent. I think they're pretty big now. Um, not Monty Cook, but Exalted Funeral was definitely uh, one. And, you know, I kind of skimmed past all of the 5e products uh, on Kickstarter, but there were four of them that crossed a million dollars in uh, 2022. They're almost all small publishers. You know, this isn't like Kobold Press, Green Ronin, other people you might recognize by names. These are people that I look at and I'm like, who is that? And the fact that a publisher where I say who is that um, is able to crack a million dollars with a 5e book on Kickstarter says that if you have a good product and a brand people are interested in, if you're an indie publisher, you can still be very successful just due to that crowdfunding and, and your great work. And then uh, another area of, uh, I guess, interest is the online gaming world and the virtual tabletops. And I know, so you had mentioned earlier that Wizards of the Coast purchased D&D Beyond, um, Drive-Thru RPG officially closed down Astral, uh, which was their table, virtual tabletop. And then now they've actually merged with Roll20. How do you see the space shaping up in the new year? We saw a lot of... Um change in it at the start of the pandemic 2020 2021 we saw a lot of people coming up and then going back down so i think it is most likely that in the next year we're just going to see these couple of people who have survived kind of prospering and doing well and expanding and we are probably past the point where someone new could come up with largely the same technology as the others. And even those, you know, companies like Astral and stuff who did primarily come up in that period, they didn't, didn't really manage to crack into it. So I, I think we're going to see consolidation of the big people is most likely. So we're going to have the Coke and the Pepsi and uh, there might be a few Dr. Pepper still kicking around, but uh, yeah, not as big. Um, and with that said, and going back to what we talked about earlier with the whole virtual tabletop and like online gaming, do you see that as uh, 
now that the pandemic's over, do you think people are still going to be using online gaming? Are they hooked into it? Or do you think that's going to wane and people are anxious to get back to face-to-face despite, you know, there's spikes obviously of um, COVID still happening, but do you, do you see the whole virtual space declining or was that enough to get people into it and stay in it? Well, I see any number of people who say, I really want to get back to uh, face-to-face gaming. But I also see people who have come together in uh, virtual gaming who could not have come together face-to-face. I mean, I moved just before the pandemic away from my old gaming groups, and I started finding new gaming groups uh, out here in Hawaii shortly uh, for a few months, and then the pandemic hit. And I started gaming with my people in the Bay Area who I used to game with again, and I'm still gaming with them. And so I I think situations like that are going to continue. And the biggest thing that I would say that makes me think it's going to continue is that Wizards of the Coast seems to be betting that it's going to. When they're pushing D&D Beyond, they're saying we think virtual tabletop is either the future of the industry or something that is big enough to allow us to monetize it. And that's with those uh, smaller um, micro microtransactions that they're kind of hoping for, whether it's skins on your uh, like tabletop pieces and in the environment of the Unity environment. And well, it's uh, definitely been of interest as far as technology goes. And speaking of technology, what has reared its head in the last probably two months in particular is artificial intelligence and uh, the impacts on game creation, whether it's Midjourney or Dolly for the art or ChatGPT for the writing. Um, there's like really within probably the last week, especially uh, a real pushback on AI art. Oh yeah, that is a can of worms. Um, as a writer, uh, I look at the artificial writing and it's horrible. Um, it is still very bad. It is repetitive. It does not know how to make arguments. It doesn't know how to string things together. Doesn't mean that in five years, it won't be at a whole totally different level. Um, the art, some of it's pretty amazing and some of it's pretty horrible. I, I look at it, um, I feel like there are three different ways that you can look at this. Um, first, you have to say, is uh, the way that they train their uh, AI bots legal? Because the training of the AI bots is, is really what's causing all of the consternation. Well, I think the fact that it can create um, publishable art is what's causing the consternation. But uh, the way that it trains the AI bots is what people are looking at for, is it problematic or not? And so the first question is, is it legal? Because essentially what the AI does is it looks over a wide span of uh, art, it, it scrapes the internet for it like so many bots do. Um, and it uses that to train itself. I don't understand exactly how the training works, but it definitely is not grabbing pieces of art and reusing them. That's not how it works. It's it's learning how to blend colors to make shapes and stuff from looking at this art. And so the question is, is that legal? And the answer seems to be 90 to 95%. Yes, it probably is legal right now. Um, The main question that would fall under is, is it derivative of copyrighted material? Uh, And one of the tests for is it derivative of copyright material usually is, is the new material transformative. And even if you have uh, AI 
uh, drawing in the style in the recognizable style of a known artist, it's pretty hard to say that isn't transformative because it's doing totally new stuff. It's, you know, not cutting and pasting. It's not creating existing work. So legal, probably yes. Uh, Chaosium is the only company I know of thus far who has directly come out against AI art. They have said our artists may not use uh, our AI created artwork. And one of their concerns is that even if it is legal now, it may become illegal in the future and they may have troubles selling stuff that they have already put art into if it is art that turns out to be illegal in the future. <clears throat> so the legality, I, I feel like, is mostly not in question at the moment, though there's a, certainly the, the concern for what may happen if, say, Disney tries to get a law passed to outlaw it. Uh, but I think the second question you have to ask, and the one that's it's as important is, is it ethical? Because laws are a kind of trailing factor. They're not on the leading edge. Uh, they're constantly being updated and changed to reflect what's ethical in society uh, and are what society needs. But that's the third point that we'll get to. And the argument that you have from the people who like AI art is that the AI is inspired or is learning from other artists exactly like people are. And that's true and not true because uh, assuming I had any artistic talent, which I don't, um, I could go and learn from other people. I could copy their style, but I couldn't do it at a, such a fundamental level that a, a, a learning AI could. Um, so I think that's that's a questionable argument. Um, but maybe it's the case. Uh, and um, I think the last thing you have to look at is, is it beneficial for society? Because that's the other thing that laws do. They try and figure out what's ethical, but they also try and figure out what's beneficial for society. And I have real concerns if, you know, young artists looking to get into the field feel like they shouldn't because there's not going to be a job for them. Um, there's a lot of robotics and stuff like, you know, self-checkout machines in uh, grocery stores. They see people equally upset about, but they're just replacing jobs that are not necessarily joyful. And, you know, creativity and art, that's something joyful, something, you know, that helps us speak to the world. And so I find that very different and not necessarily, I, I would say flatly, it is not beneficial to society if we are discouraging people from doing that. So it's a really hard question that has a lot of issues. And I think part of it's gonna come out to, are people's worst fears actually true? Because the worst fears that people have are these AI artists are just going to, uh, and whether they're artists or not is something that people like to argue to. This AI art is going to replace human artists. I don't know if that's true. I can see if I were an artist that I would be really worried about that. But if it's not true, because it can just never find the heart, the spirit, the originality, something that you would have in humans, if it can never find the ability to actually really precisely represents something that you want represent, then the rest of it kind of falls away. So 
it could be in a year that this is still a really serious issue, or it could be in a year we, you know, see it fall away like uh, Y2K and, you know, other concerns. I don't know which. Yeah, I've actually, I've tried to get uh, David H uh, is uh, his name uh, from Mid Journey to come on the show, but I mean, I'm a pretty small fish in his big pond uh, to just talk about that. But I know some of the arguments, uh, I've heard all sorts of things as far as like, uh, as a game designer, you could actually, in theory, have more of a uh, ability to focus the game exactly as you want it by using AI art that you've actually inspired versus relying upon more of a collaborative approach, I suppose, with the artist and yourself working towards it. And then the other thing is uh, often people say, well, it's a little bit gatekeeper-y to say, well, I already have a game company and like a Chaosium where you say, well, no, we're going to support real artists, but you already have a business model and somebody coming in with AI art could disrupt you. So it's actually a pretty much a no-brainer for Chaosium to say that you have a relationship with artists that you want to maintain and you don't want people to disrupt your business model. So yeah, of course you're going to say that, but I guess time will tell how this is all going to play out. Yeah, I, I think that's very likely. I think it's going to be the case for for writing too, that time will tell what the quality of what can be done within our lifetimes really is. Um, and it's going to be whole different levels of concern if you know it can produce great work or it can produce adequate work. Well, uh, going from an AI world and digital world of virtual tabletops, conventions, getting back into the fold of things. Uh, Gen Con was back. Um, I was there. Uh, I think it might've been the largest Gen Con perhaps, but I'm not too sure for sure since the pandemic started. Uh, what have you seen as far as like conventions go? People seem pretty comfortable about getting back to conventions. Uh, some conventions have maintained masking. Um, I know Big Bad Con in the Bay Area was one of the ones that did. Um, some have not. Uh, I have not heard of any huge outbreaks uh, as a result of uh, conventions. And I, I did have con some concerns with the summer season as I did last year too, uh, where um, you had conventions back to back and it would have been really easy for people to get sick at one convention and then bring it to the next and get sick. But I haven't heard of any of that. Uh, I did hear early in the year uh, a uh, announcement that uh, one of the people working at, I think it was one of the PAXs uh, as security or something had died due to COVID. And I don't know if I ever saw that followed up or confirmed or such. It's a real concern. It's obviously going to happen. Um, we do seem to be in a new period of the pandemic where the concern is much lower. Uh, where many people are vaccinated, where there is less ability for, uh, uh, you know, a big breakout, but it's still out there. It may continue to be out there forever. Um, I'm hearing that hospitalizations are dramatically rising this winter when are already higher than they were all of last winter. So there may be new concerns there. Uh, I've heard that the pickup of the new bivalent booster is 14%, 20%, something in the US, very low. Um, and given that the boosters wane, that could easily mean that we're going to see worse and worse until something changes. So it continues to be a mess, but it is impacting us and our activities 
less now, whether that's good or bad. Do you see conventions still maintaining their place in a increasingly a metaverse type of world? Um, do you th still think they're Im as important? We talked about this a little bit last year and you said, yes, do you still maintain that? Yes. Um, I mean, if you're just talking about uh, the metaverses in Facebook's, you know, yeah. grotesquely failed of, uh, thing, well, that didn't seem to work out. I mean, if you're talking about in the scope of all the virtual tabletops and stuff, forums and stuff, we've had those forever and conventions have just surged, you know, Gen Con has been dramatically increasing in its uh, uh, attendees throughout the uh, last two decades. We had PAX appear and multiply and do great. So conventions seem to be pretty well on the upswing to me, So, which is why I you know, easily say yes when you ask that this last year in this. And uh, last year we talked about uh, tabletop role-playing games as content and uh, Critical Role was like, uh, we talked about the success of them and then their legend uh, of Vox uh, animation and uh, the D&D movie is set to come out in March, I believe. Um, do you see that continuing? And you also talked about uh, Warhammer had some shows and World of Darkness uh, was in development of a show. Do you see that kind of external um, beyond tabletop role-playing game continuing? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, we just got an announcement in the last week that uh, I believe it was a Warhammer 40K series is gonna be on Amazon. Um, so that that tells me yes it's still pretty big the content is uh pretty big i think the dungeons and dragons movie will be one that really tells all or not if it's successful or even wildly successful then that will mean in the next five years we see a huge surge of uh, uh role-playing uh focused media if it flops like the last few DD movies will that'd be a totally different story but you know until that Schrodinger's movie goes off one way or the other. Uh, I think we're going to continue seeing it. And, and we've seen it, you know, from uh, the cyberpunk uh, video game last year to, as I said, the upcoming uh, Amazon work on Warhammer. And now we're going to move into what we'd probably, I refer to as like business controversies issues. So we already talked about Ray Winninger leaving the Wizards of the Coast. Um, other folks uh, leaving were uh, Lisa Stevens. Yeah, Lisa Stevens has been announcing for a while that uh, she would be stepping down from Pezo, uh, and she finally did, uh, probably several months ago now. Uh, and that, I'm very sad that she will not be there anymore. She has been a crucial figure in the industry for 30 years. Uh, she was... Uh, one of the people that helped White Wolf get started. She was employee number one at Wizards Coast. Then she founded Pezo. You know, that's that's pretty much three of the uh, biggest uh, role-playing companies in that time. Um, but what I found great about that story was the fact that she was able to plan that and execute that, put someone new in charge, and hopefully allow the company to carry on beyond her. And that is not the story of our industry in general. Um, the story of our industry in general is that we have companies that are owned by, you know, a small group of people are, are a person. And if they retire or pass, 
than the company usually does as well. And in many cases, it's come under, you know, different party ownership through some work and in other ones, it's just kind of faded away. And so the fact that Peso is big enough and successful enough that it is able to manage a, you know, transition like that really speaks well for it and for an industry that can allow that. And they also started a union there as well. Yeah, that's uh, terrific. I love the fact that uh, unions are possible in our industry. That was a year ago. There was a new union at Noble Knight game this year. That doesn't necessarily speak to me to Pezo's success because it was in reaction to some uh, management practices at Pezo that were not necessarily the best. So it's great that it does also speak to the fact that the industry is big enough that it can support that type of thing. And unions are great to help protect workers. And I actually think they're very important in our industry because much like the video game industry, the role-playing industry is really a dream industry where people really want to get in and work and, uh, you know, do the creative things that they've always dreamed of. And that's really easy for a company to take advantage of. And so the video game industry is horrible. You hear about, you know, 60 to 80 hour work weeks and people being laid off after every big project, but this being willing to go back to the next company. Role-playing industry isn't that bad, but the workers at Pezo had some real concerns from, you know, rates of pay to, you know, the cleanliness of the carpets at the uh, building. Um, and I suspect there are other companies that if they are big enough and successful enough, the workers might want to speak up there too to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of. And that's great. And uh, we also had another departure. Daniel D. Fox uh, left Andrews McNeil and he's responsible for uh, Zweihander and uh, also supporting, I think, uh, Neverland and Andrew Kolb's Neverland and um, the Oz books, as well as Blackbirds. And I guess that speaks to like, I mean, as the industry grows, these types of things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think it speaks to the fact that there are definite elements of the industry that are kind of more in the normal corporate model. I mean, that in particular, Andrews, McMeal, they're, they're a big publisher. Uh, you know, they're a megacorp with many different divisions. One of their other divisions deals with most of the syndicated comic scripts. I do not know any of the circumstances of Daniel's leaving other than the fact that he was leaving. And I'd have to guess it was not his preference. Um, but if Andrews McMeals stays in the role-playing business, then hopefully they'll be getting role-playing games uh, of, a, of a variety of sorts out to a lot of new people. And uh, Daryl Hayhurst as well? Yeah, Daryl Hayhurst uh, left Ulysses Spiel due to a reorganization was about all that I heard there. Um, Ulysses Spiel has, I feel like, perpetually had great uh, products uh, such as Targ, uh, that haven't necessarily gotten into the U.S. market as well as we might have liked. Uh, they are fundamentally a German company, Ulysses Spiel. Uh, they do have a Ulysses North American, and they just don't seem to get the traction that I would love to see them get for the really exciting products that they're putting out. 
And we already talked about Modiphius losing the Conan license, which was like a fairly big and more recent announcement. They also, I, kind of going down a rabbit hole, were they going to have an open game license for a 2D20 system? I don't know if that ever went anywhere. Yeah, I vaguely recall something of that now that you mention it. I don't, I don't remember what happened with that, if it happened or, or not. Um, and then we, uh, on the controversy uh, business side of things, Wizards of the Coast and Dragonlance settlement. Yeah, well, the great thing is that uh, Dragons of Deceit, the first new book by Hickman and Weiss, came out a month ago or so, two months. Uh, it, it's on my Christmas list, so either I'll, I'll have it in a few days or uh, else I'll buy myself a copy right afterwards. It's very exciting to see. And of course, they came out with uh, the the new Dragonlance board game and Shadow of the Dragon Queen, the new role-playing campaign. Uh, Wizards of the Coast did that. And so the fact that both Wizards and the original creators of Dragonlance are putting out stuff is terrific. Uh, it's very unfortunate that there had to be a lawsuit uh, to force wizards to fulfill their licensing agreement, which is, as I understand it, what happened, that they were uh, withholding uh, the okay on the Dragons of Deceit material without giving any way for uh, Hickman and Weiss to actually resolve any problems, which is typically required in a, a contract and apparently wasn't theirs. And so it's very unfortunate that it had to come down to that, but great. And I am looking forward to uh, reading the first new Hickman and Weiss book in, I think, at least a decade in the Dragonlance universe. And then maybe going in a darker path, uh, the new TSR and everything that's subsequently fallen out of that. Yeah, I was looking at that for, you know, this year's report. And at first, my response was, oh, it's just more of the same. Uh, and then I, I looked more at some of my notes and a leaked draft that is supposedly, and everyone believes, uh, their Star Frontiers draft, it's just horribly racist. And they claim it's not theirs. No one blames it. No one believes them in that, but it's what they claim. But, you know, it did things like uh, had a, a Black character race who had limited intelligence and a white character race who had big bonuses to all of their stats. It it was horrible. Um, so yeah, uh, Wizards of the Coast tried to get a restraining order on that. It was so bad. <clears throat> and apparently the judge just denied that a few days ago, but they just denied it because new TSR said, oh, we're not going to publish that right now. Um, and so the judge said, we're not going to give a restraining order uh, if, if, if it's irrelevant. Um, so uh, I, I presume that new TSR will be bankrupt and possibly the founders of it will be bankrupt too if uh, the corporate veil gets pierced because uh, wizards can show fraud. And I think there's an argument for it in the way the trademarks were claimed. So I don't think they're going to be an issue after next year. It is sad that they keep taking up time and effort from people and concern and that they're given a shitty reputation for the industry and that they're simultaneously uh, running uh, what is supposed to be a museum for the industry in Wisconsin. And then there was the, uh, well, I, I don't know if I call it a downfall of Satine and uh, Stone as far as uh, uh, bad uh, relations yeah. and business practices. Yeah, it came out that they were being abusive to other people, and there was the 
usual uh, cycle of claims they didn't do it, followed by apologies, and they seem to be trying to get back into the industry. And I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll see what happens. And uh, Mar Barker? <sighs> yeah, that that was the worst news of the year. The, uh, it was discovered that he had authored a neo-Nazi novel for a neo-Nazi publisher back in the 90s, I think it was. Uh, and I mean, the thing that that was horrible. Uh, and as far as we can tell, I'm pretty sure it's the case, the Tecumo Foundation who controls all of the rights to it's known about it for a while and opted not to tell anyone about it. And it finally only came out because someone wrote a um, PhD thesis or something on M.A.R. Barker and they, in a footnote, quietly alluded to the fact that there might be an offensive book of some type that he had written, but they'd been asked not to talk about it. And someone in the industry finally got a hold of that uh, thesis or whatever it was uh, and uh, uh, figured out what they were talking about and started talking about themselves. And the whole industry found out about it very early this year, but it had been whispered about in various places before. And the reason that it really offended me that the foundation opted not to say anything about this for years, uh, as far as we know, is that, you know, I don't know what's in Tecumel that, you know, might have neo-Nazi leanings, what underpinnings of its uh, uh, setting or philosophy or that might, you know, people who have studied it more have said, no, they don't think that there's anything there, but I, I wouldn't be willing to run it for people at this point. I, I still have some of his uh, uh, EPT novels in my collection here, which may stay there, but I, I feel like taking that choice away from players and from game masters who may or may not have decided otherwise if they had known that there may be concern for the material. Uh, I think that's awful. It's de-empowering and it's it's uh perhaps not as bad as him being a neo-nazi and i say that and there's a little bit of nuance there you know people say maybe he wrote it satirically or something but you know he wrote a pro neo-nazi book for a neo-nazi publisher it kind of stops mattering what his intent was but i don't personally believe his intent was good or satirical or anything like that Sucks. It was definitely some of the worst news of the year. Um, and then uh, Drive Through had to put out a uh, new terms of service about hostile marketing. Yeah, they were running into problems where a handful of bad actors would put books up on the service that they were pretty sure were going to get blocked from them just based on you know existing roles and then would start advertising you know how it was going to be banned by drive through rpg or you know waiting until it was banned and then uh talking about what evil people drive through rpg were and how great their books were and drive through finally said you know if you're putting out books and you know you're going to market them based on slagging us we're going to say no um so it I think there were some valid censorship concerns about that. 
But I also think when people are purposely trying to game the system, I, I lose much concern for them. And then moving on to perhaps nicer things uh, where we're yes. talking about uh, uh, the blurring of, I, I kind of pose this to you of like, there's a blurring of content promotion and creation, you know, whether it's YouTube or game design or whatever, but like Sly Flourish, who had an excellent Ennies Awards season. And then it was Matthew Colville, who obviously has a very successful YouTube channel as well as game design company. And, uh, you know, uh, D Dice Breakers doing their now own awards and they have more actual plays and stuff like that. There seems to be like just this fluidness of content creation and promotion and game design all mixed together. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. And I, I, I think that's going on and seems like it's probably good. I mean, when you start to get into big companies, you start to say, you know, do they have a vertical monopoly and stuff like that? But you know, someone like Dice Breakers or, or Matt Colville, I don't think they're large enough to, maybe Matt Colville is, I think generally they're not large enough to have um, kind of the monopolistic concerns that you have. And so they just kind of look to me as ways to get more interest in the industry and yeah, for their products, but it, I suspect it's mostly beneficial. It, it's back to the old days of Dragon Magazine and promoting TSR, I suppose. Um, and then finally, on a very nice note, Ian Livingston uh, was knighted. Yeah, that's terrific. Um, I think a lot of us are like, ah, yes, one of the people from our industry. But he also did do a report for the UK government uh, that was all about uh, the video game uh, design uh, and whether the educational institutions in the United Kingdom were actually bringing people up so that they could get into uh, design and development of the gaming industry. Uh, spoiler, his answer was no. Um, so that was probably one of the main reasons that he was on their radar for that type of thing. But I, I certainly hope it was also for his founding of Games Workshop, co-founding, uh, for his co-founding of the Fighting Fantasy Gamebook series, uh, for the other work he's done in you know the video games industry. Uh, certainly one of the... Uh, you know, creators of our industry. So it was really great to see him recognized. And also in the same year that he put out a, a hefty tome called Dice Men, uh, which was about his uh, foundation of Game Workshop with Steve Jackson, the British Steve Jackson. Um, and the same year that he put out a new fighting fantasy book, both he and Steve Jackson put out new fighting fantasy books this year for the first time in some time. And then uh, we're going to get into our predictions for next year, and we're going to talk about some of the folks that we've lost this year. But before we get into that, tell us, where can people find more about your work, Designers and Dragons? I've, like I said, with all four tomes here, uh, you have a Patreon. Uh, just tell us, what are you up to for the next year? Well, since uh, 2020, I've started spending half time on doing role-playing writing. Uh, and I am working on eight books. Um, just eight? Just eight. Yeah, just eight. So there's going to be three new Designers and Dragons books. Uh, there's The Lost Histories 1, The Lost Histories 2, and The Tens. Uh, and those books uh, I'm hoping to finish up next year. Uh, I've written 20, 30, 35 new histories already, going from like Grenadier and Martian Metals back in the 70s 
to uh, Modiphius and Freeling and in the uh, tins. Uh, so those are three of the books. I also, some years ago, wrote a bunch of product histories for uh, what was then called D&D Classics and now has become part of DMs Guild, all of the uh, original TSR products. Uh, and I've been collecting the first decade and a half of those into uh, a series of four books that I uh, currently have roughly named the TSR codices, but we'll see what actually they end up called. Uh, so they give a product history of every single product from Chainmail through the end of AD&D first edition and every basic D&D book and every later Mistaran book. So it goes up to 89 on the AD&D side and 94 and 95 or something on the uh, basic D&D Mistaran side. So that's going to be another four books. And those I'm very certain that we will kickstart in some way in 2024, which is going to be the 50th anniversary of D&D and role-playing. Um, I've got the third book of those that I'm going to finish off this year. And they're all collections of what I wrote for D&D Classics, but cleaned up, uh, regularized, uh, and expanded into uh, uh, a coherent series. And then the eighth book I'm working on is one that I was just asked to write this year, which is a book-length history of the Traveler role-playing game. So uh, Matthew oh, Sprague. Yeah, Matthew Sprague over at uh, Mongoose and Mark Miller asked me to write that, and uh, I'm around the halfway mark. Uh, I, I got to the point where there were so many magazines and fanzines in the very successful 80s that I got uh, stuck up a bit as I, I went through it all, but I'm working on chapter seven, I think, right now out of 13 or 14. Well, so. I've definitely read a lot of your traveler stuff over the years. So uh, you, know, you have a good knowledge of that. So I'm excited to see that. And uh, I also am a subscriber on your Patreon. So I will have all the links uh, to your uh, websites and, and that sort of thing. But I encourage people, if you are not on uh, um, Shannon's Patreon, to check it out and you get the, the early content, correct? Yeah, yeah. The three places right now where you can get uh, Designers and Dragons content. Uh, there's a Facebook page, which you can find Designers and Dragons, and mostly you'll see links there a little bit to my own stuff and also to other historical and current day stuff that I find interesting. Uh, there's an RPG, RPG net column, which has what I've always called my orthogonal histories, which are not the product histories or the company histories. They're just whatever else I feel like writing that is kind of historical. So one thing that I'll publish on the uh, second is my year in review, which is going to kind of mirror much of what we've said here. Uh, but I've also uh, published a variety of other things there. And the third thing is the Patreon, uh, which has previews of the upcoming books. So if you just want to wait for the books, they'll be out in probably 2024, starting in 2024. But if you want to see them right now, the uh, Company histories for the lost histories in the tens have been getting published there. And also for the really enthusiastic readers, uh, all of the uh, uh, TSR material and even the traveler material has been getting published for them as well. So you can just search on those services for designers and dragons, and you should be able to find each of them. Cool. Okay. Let's get into your predictions for the upcoming year. Any kind of big overarching themes? Uh, big overarching themes. Uh, I think the biggest uh, question is going to be Wizards of the Coast. I have to assume that by the end of the year, they're going to need to make some announcement about what one D&D is going to be. 
and so there will either be a sigh of relief felt across the industry or there is going to be uh, a lot of pushback and I'm kind of guessing the latter um, that they are going to do some things either requiring their virtual tabletop or the open game license that are not going to make people happy so uh, I think that's the big one um, do you do you think uh, they're I think they have like four or five books still coming out under the 5e banner next year or thereabouts do you think those are going to tank in sales not tank that's not the right word but do you think just because of the announcement of one D that sales just won't be what they should or could be yeah i mean i think tank's a perfectly reasonable word because we saw like uh d20 crash hard when three five got got announced uh modern day players have definitely proven that they are concerned about uh addition upgrades and whether it will invalidate their publications right now no because they've said the right things that it's not in a new edition and it's going to be backward compatible if at some point they walk back one or the other of those it's going to be a whole different ball game okay sorry i interrupted you there i just <laughs> had to ask the question uh but you were talking about just the overarching themes of uh so you talked about one D D. um so i, I think kickstarter is going to be a, another big question um i think they're probably going to get rehabilitated a little bit because I think at some point they're going to have to admit that the blockchain thing was a fantasy. Um, I think uh, AI is going to be con continue to be a very big issue in the coming year because uh, it's a big issue right now and it's December. I would have to guess that we are going to see more uh, people real really taking stances and that there is going to be some type of legal answer by the end of the year. Uh, that either we're going to get judges saying, hey, that's perfectly legal, or we're going to get legislatures saying, we've decided it shouldn't be legal for this reason. Um, I believe Midjourney has already said that uh, they are going to let people opt in or opt out. No, it wasn't Midjourney. It was uh, Diffusion, Stable Diffusion. So they were going to let artists opt in or opt out. Uh, we may see more of that. And if suddenly all of the AIs became opt-in and opt-out, then I think a lot of the complaints have to go away at that point. So um, I think we're going to see new TSR uh, in bankruptcy, but I think no one's going to care, uh, other than the fact that we won't have to hear about them anymore. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of publishers continuing to put out good material and the industry continuing to be successful. But I think there's some opportunity for um, things to slow down. The inflationary pressures on the whole world are not good for the economy right now. They seem to be slowing, but they seem to be slowing slowly. And so that's going to hit discretionary spending, which is going to hit gaming. Um, hopefully, much as with uh, the pandemic, it's not going to be as bad as it could have been. But I think there's going to be some issues and we're going to see some people uh, pulling back product lines as a result. Okay. Well, uh, as we mentioned, you know, we lost some good folks as uh, we do every year, just uh, in the nature of life. Um, let's just talk about a few of them. Uh, Kim Mohan. Yeah. Kim Mohan is, was one of the most important people in Dungeons and Dragons and the role-playing industry that many people never heard of, I suspect. Uh, he was the 
editor of Dragon Magazine, starting with issue number 49, continuing to 114. Um, I think many of us of a certain age at least really consider that the golden age. I mean, my first issue I ever picked up was number 70. And so that was square in the middle. What Dragon Magazine was, was his vision. Um, but it went far beyond that. He went over to New Infinities when Gary Gygax did, and then actually came back, which not many people did. And he continued to work at TSR and then at Wizards of Coast through, uh, I think, 2013. Um, editorial work usually, which is again why I think most people won't have seen him. But from what everyone who's worked with him said, he was a magnificent editor who, you know, made everything he touched better, um, which I always have the highest respect for editors because I've seen so many editors who made my work that much better. And, and he was apparently one of the, the best. So someone who impacted role-playing and D&D from, I think it was 79 to 2013, you know, almost 35 years. And he actually kept doing some freelance work for Wizards even after he uh, retired. So it's probably more like 40 years. That's irreplaceable. And uh, Scott Benny? Yeah, Scott Benny uh, was a designer um, who did various freelance work. And, uh, and uh, Jerry Corrick? Yeah, Jerry Corrick is another one of the ones who probably many people would not recognize, but he was one of the uh, uh, backers of Trident, uh, who, which is the actual company that Atlas Games uh, is. And so one of those people who didn't necessarily get a lot of recognition, uh, but was, you know, the foundational, and it wasn't just that he put money in, but that he, ideas, support, uh, et cetera, you know, we wouldn't see any number of uh, great innovative games that have come out of Atlas over the decades without him. And uh, Edward Dalton Pugh. Yeah, Edward Dalton Pugh was the founder of Reaper Miniatures. Um, I don't know much about Reaper's story. Most people would recognize them for their plastic minis, the uh, Bones uh, line. And uh, the first of those when it was kickstarted to expand the line, earned about $3.5 million. And that was back in 2012, 2013, something like that. Meaning it was one of the first, not just large, but huge, I kind of call it role-playing adjacent because it wasn't exactly a role-playing line, but one of the first huge role-playing related uh, kickstarters. And that was all him. And finally, Ray Rubin. Yeah, Ray Rubin, I mentioned Grandier earlier as a history I'd written recently. He was one of the co-founders. Uh, he had done some sculpting before, but when he actually got to Grandier, most of what he did was more branding, marketing. You know, if you saw a blister pack backing that, you know, had something painted on it, that was probably his work. So he did a lot of the work to decide what uh, Grenadier looked like how it was you know represented to the public and uh they did a very successful gold box dnd line it was called when they had the dnd license for a couple of years in the early 80s that uh you know probably is what quite a few people again from a certain generation's memory of what dnd miniatures looked like were these you know gold spine boxes well uh Shannon, uh, once again, I just want to thank you uh, for joining us and sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Uh, look forward to seeing uh, more of uh, your work in the coming years. And 
as we say goodbye to everybody, we want to wish you uh, a great uh, new year and uh, hope all the best for you and happy and healthy uh, 2023. And as we leave, we'll play off uh, in memoriam of some of those that we've lost this year. So uh, thanks again for joining us and all the best in 2023. Thank you very much for having me and the best to you too.